0: You're listening to the Cyberwire network, powered by N2K.
1: The people at the top of the system, as I say they they don't really need this and may well fight it, but you know, they're not the future anyway. I mean, they're the past. So.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the new Biden executive order on surveillance and data sharing with the European Union. I got the story of the consequences of a community banning ransomware payments. And later in the show, Ben's conversation with Glenn Moody, author of the new book, Walled Culture, How big content uses technology and the law to lock down culture and keep creators poor. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. All right, Ben, we've got some good stuff this week. Uh, Let's jump right into our stories. Why don't you start things off for us here?
2: So mine was a bit of a Friday news dump, Um, (laughs) but it comes from the New York Times, and the headline is, Under New Order, Europeans Can Complain to U.S. About Data Collection. Hmm. So we've been tracking this for a while now. The United States and the European Union are trying to come together to an agreement uh, to provide for data sharing. It's very valuable. It fuels a lot of economic activity. If we can share data with the European Union and they can share the data with us, it'll help our companies and these same companies that operate in Europe uh, really maximize their bottom line Okay, uh, because data is extremely valuable. So what kind of data are we talking about? Is this Facebook? Is this uh, like what... Yes, uh, so I mean the companies they mentioned specifically in this article are Facebook, Google, etc. Okay, um, and the biggies. Of, yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, and it's been a very economically beneficial uh, arrangement. Hmm. The uh, problem with this type of data sharing uh, has come up in a couple of cases that have made their way to the European Court of Justice. So we had an agreement on data sharing uh, with the European Union that was a pl- in place. Uh, about 10 years ago. And then the Edward Snowden revelations happened, and uh, the European Union and many of its member states became skeptical about the US surveillance state and whether the data of citizens in the European Union was safe, considering some of our surveillance authorities. Mm. Then GDPR came later in the decade, uh, and it enhanced the privacy rights of uh, members of the European Union. So it became even more of a problem. Mm-hmm. The first uh, agreement was struck down in a case brought by a privacy activist, Mr. Uh, Max Shrem's, who is a recurring character in this uh, in this story. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so the U.S. and the European Union came to a new agreement uh, to try to ameliorate some of the complaints from Mr. Shrem's and others in light of GDPR. Uh, that agreement uh, was also struck down in Shrem's two, the second Schrems case where the European Court of Justice said that the U.S. had not properly reformed its surveillance laws. They cited a couple surveillance authorities, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, Executive Order 12333. Uh, they, the European Court of Justice said that the data of European citizens was not safe uh, as it traveled through the United States. Hmm. So since TREMS 2... Uh, the U.S. and the European Union have been trying to work closely on an agreement that would pass muster in the European Court of Justice. And they have reached a preliminary agreement, and that's reflected in this executive order. Hmm. The big new provision here is giving Europeans the ability to protest when they believe their personal information has been caught in America's online surveillance dragnet. So if any citizen in the European Union, uh, or any government official for that matter, Uh, feels that their communications have been caught up in our massive surveillance programs, they can complain to an official in the office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, and it will go in front of a new entity called the Data Protection Review Court. And that's going to be an independent review body. Hmm. So there's sort of a, a desperation here. I mean, we might be heading into an economic downturn. This is productive economic activity, Uh, So the U.S. and the European Union certainly have incentive to come to an agreement. And the Biden uh, administration, in announcing this step, is trying to foster uh, that agreement. Hmm. The issue uh, comes back to the main character in this story, Mr. Schrems. He is the privacy advocate and has been the plaintiff on the first two lawsuits. When I read this executive order, I was like, you know, this is probably going to satisfy Schrems. And we might have a working uh, data sharing agreement uh, that's equitable for both the European Union and the United States. But they interviewed Mr. Schrem's at the end of this article, and he said, eh, not so fast. Uh, his exact quote is, at first sight, it seems that the core issues were not solved. Uh, and he thinks that this is going to go back in front of the European Court uh, of Justice sooner or later. So we could be staring down the barrel of Shrems three, And frankly, I don't know... What else the Biden administration can do to satisfy the concerns of SHREMS without significantly curtailing our surveillance state, which sounds great in theory, but it's just not going to happen. I mean, we're having a debate next year about uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and Section 702, which is up for reauthorization. Right. And there's not much appetite to curtail it. Uh, with the threat landscape up there. It's possible that new civil liberties protections are added. um, But until we do that, if the European Union and Mr. Schrems are are not satisfied with this new executive order, then I think uh, it may be a while until we have a a really robust data sharing agreement in place. So, I mean, isn't this a fundamental difference uh, in an approach to, to privacy? yeah, I mean, that's really what's being reflected here is that we may value certain civil liberties more than our European counterparts, particularly the First Amendment. I think right. that's something we've discussed, yeah because of GDPR and the political culture and some of the unique constitutions uh, within European member states, there is more of a culture of privacy. They have a data privacy regulation. We do not at the federal level. Mm. Uh, So I think this is something that particularly their courts have become, I don't want to say obsessed with, but it's really become a fundamental value uh, reflected in the European Union. And it's really extraordinary the lengths to which the Biden administration is willing to make sacrifices to make this agreement work. I mean, Mm. giving non u s persons the ability to petition to an independent body under the direct- office of the Director of National Intelligence is kind of a rare step i mean we we usually don't grant these type these type of process or administrative rights to foreigners yeah uh, but I think the effort here is to try to satisfy the European Union's desire for enhanced privacy protection uh, hmm. and it seems like. The political leaders in the European Union agree with this. It's just shrems and the European Court of Justice that that have to be brought on board. And until that happens, I don't think we can have any confidence. If you're working for one of the big tech companies, I don't think you can have confidence that this agreement is, is going to be maintained.
0: Uh, help me understand this right to protest. I mean, what? what do, I mean, okay. So I'm a European citizen. I am upset about something, I can bring my case in front of this new uh, group, then what? Do they have the power to make any change? Can can anything happen? Or do they pat
2: me on the head and say, we hear you? (laughs) Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, that's going to be developed in regulations, what the actual legal relief is here. Okay. Uh, It's an independent review body, meaning it will have statutory authority. My guess is that... They would be able to issue some type of injunction uh, against whatever company is complying with the surveillance, or maybe against the federal agency that's conducting the surveillance. Hmm. Uh, but I don't think we're going to know exactly how that process is going to work until this is implemented. Hmm. Um, so it's not like a full court proceeding. It's more of uh, go, like it's more like going in front of an administrative law judge. Okay. Uh, It's Go on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's you're not going to have the type of adversarial proceeding that you'd have if it was a plaintiff versus a defendant. It's going to be somebody, one party pleading their case in front of this independent uh, review body. And we just don't know anything about what this review body is going to look like. Um, Okay. I don't know how the members of this independent body are going to be appointed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once that happens— I mean, the makeup of this review body could be different depending on the presidential administration that's mm-hmm. in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a lot of that kind of um, future outlook on the real power involved in this executive order is is kind of murky at the moment. Do you think that this kind of
0: economic pressure or uh, acknowledgement of an economic need could be something that moves the needle in terms of our
2: nation's approach to privacy? That's the million-dollar question here. I mean, mm. it seems, and I'll go beyond that, I mean, it, I think the reality is that our surveillance practices are hurting us economically. If we can't come up with a deal that enables the flow of data that uh, that underpins uh, more than a trillion dollars in cross-border trade and investment, and that's according to our Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, if... We have to give that up because we're not willing to curtail some of our surveillance practices. I think that's pretty revealing about our national values. Um, We're giving up a lot of money to maintain surveillance powers. Uh, But it's not something that's entirely surprising. I mean, we've been having this conversation for the past 20 years. Uh, Some of the tools that have specifically been mentioned in the SHREMS cases are tools that our executive agencies do not want to give up. And that's true under the Trump administration, Biden administration, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are the crown jewels of national intelligence. They were used uh, for counterterrorism operations, um, and many of them have been successful in thwarting uh, potential terrorist attacks. Now they're being used uh, as authorities to deal with the the threat of Russian aggression. Um, So it's one of those things where even if there is an economic sacrifice, I don't see our country, our Congress, our administration willing to significantly curtail these type, the type of surveillance authorities that they value so much. And mm-hmm. you can understand why they value them. I mean, it's protecting our national security. It's just, it does not come without a cost. And this is the cost that we're bearing. I think the Biden administration is trying to, nudge things in the right direction and see if it sticks. And Hmm. I think it comes down to whether the European Court of Justice and Schrems are satisfied with the steps that have been taken here. I think it would take a lot more uh, for them to actually consider curtailing our own surveillance practices to placate our European allies.
0: Hmm. What about Mr. Shrems himself?
2: <laughs> could, what about Mr. Shrems well, himself? I,
0: I guess I mean could could the could the folks on the other side of the pond say we've had enough of you you're 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 we're going to we're, we're going to
2: move you to a different position. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they could try, but he has (laughs) under GDPR a cause of action that he can bring in front of European courts. And if the courts are amenable to his complaints, which they clearly are, then there's nothing that government officials can do about it. I mean, you can come to an agreement. He's doing
0: what he should be doing. I mean, he's doing what he was put there to do. Right? Exactly. It's yeah.
2: the raison d'etre. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Close enough for me. <laughs> okay. It, yeah. It is the reason Max Schrems wakes up in the morning. Right, right. To uh, protest U.S. surveillance practices and the threat it poses to European European users of the internet. Right. Uh, and I don't think he's going to stop just because the powers that be in Brussels try to tell him to knock it off. Yeah. I and mean, that's just not who he is. And I— I don't think that's what the courts, uh, the European courts, uh, are amenable to doing. Okay. All right. Well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Uh, interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of suspense here. I mean, I'll keep an eye on whether there is a new lawsuit filed under this executive order, uh, and we'll have to follow it pretty closely. Yeah. All right, my story
0: this week uh, comes from the News and Observer out of North Carolina. This is an article written by Brian Gordon. Um, and it is uh, an interesting example of um, a community uh, banning the payment or even communication with ransomware uh, actors, with, with the, the bad guys who are, who are you know hitting them with ransomware. So a little bit of backstory here. Um, back in May of 2021, there was a bill introduced in the North Carolina House of Representatives, and this was to eliminate public ransomware payments. So uh, if uh, you know the state government or a county government gets hit with ransomware, this law would say you are not allowed to pay the ransom. Indeed, you are not allowed to even communicate with the folks who have held your data for ransom. So while this was being proposed in front of the um, the North Carolina House of Representatives, colonial pipeline happened. And so this bill flew through, <laughs> right, as, sort of as a result of that. Right. Um, it was quite
2: a coincidence that this major event happened right as they were considering this piece of legislation. Right, right. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion now
0: as to whether or not this is a good idea, uh, this article has an interview with uh, several folks who are uh, experts in in cybersecurity. Um, they speak with a gentleman named John Stark, who's a cybersecurity consultant and also teaches at the Duke University School of Law. Um, and he says that he thinks it's misguided. Uh, he, he thinks you know that the the notion that um, hackers are going to know that a particular jurisdiction is uh, prohibited from paying the ransom and therefore not going to hit them with their ransomware. He
2: says, I don't think that's how hackers think. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree with that perspective. I do think this is a federal issue and it probably should be dealt with uh, at the federal level Hmm. because we don't want to get into a situation where 50 different states have 50 different rules about whether you are allowed to pay a ransom or even communicate with the hostage takers. Right. It would create a lot of administrative confusion. Um, It would create confusion in our court system. I think Congress really needs to step in and develop federal policy around this. Hmm. And they've started to do that. I mean, it's not uh, enacted into any statutes uh, as of yet, but it's something that Congress has been paying attention to. I also don't necessarily agree. I mean— I understand the rationale behind it, but I don't necessarily agree that this is the right policy wherever it's being implemented. Mm -hmm. Um, There are certainly downsides, especially for the entities that have been uh, attacked via ransomware, to prohibiting ransomware payments. I mean, sometimes it is within the interest, the short-term interest of the company or the local government to pay the ransom. Mm -hmm. And being barred from doing so by the state government is going to create a lot of Potential conflict. It could be a situation where maybe they hire consultants to evaluate the ransomware attackers and it's some type of group that has been known to actually accept ransom payments and release the relevant data. Right. Uh, and at that point, local governments face a very difficult choice. Uh, and sometimes either to protect life safety or personal uh information of of local citizens or customers, they might think it's necessary to pay the ransom. Whether that's good for all of us long-term or even for the companies themselves, long-term is a separate question. But I think the iron hammer uh, of the state government coming down on on these companies is not a wise way uh, to enact this type of policy change.
0: Yeah, this this article describes what's going on here. And and it's interesting because there's also... A requirement for reporting. So governments and public schools have to alert the state if they fall victim to a ransomware attack. Um, And at that point, uh, there's a joint cybersecurity task force, which the North Carolina governor established. Um, They will travel to the site of the attack, assess the issue and develop corrective actions. Uh, They don't detail the corrective actions, citing security reasons. Um, they sound
2: like the coolest superheroes ever. They're <laughs> activated. Yeah, they go to the cybermobile and, right, and go right. on site to to solve these problems.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. Like, what are what are the corrective actions? Obviously, you know, we know how people try to uh, recover from a ransomware attack, and and so if you're if paying the ransom is off the table, you know that limits the the number of things you can do. Um, I wonder. You know, there's a part of me that wonders, uh, they assess the issue and develop corrective actions. Could one of the corrective actions be paying an outside party to pay the ransom. <laughs> to pay the ransom. Yeah, we didn't pay the ransom. We right, were just right, We were just paying right. this consulting just, group. Uh, magic. I don't know what happened, but magically and mystically, our files go, we got them back. Yeah, I think that would be called. Party. I
2: think that would be called laundering money. Uh, <laughs> I see, but I'm not sure how North Carolina would deal with such a situation. Really, the solution here, and this is mentioned by many experts in the article, is just to increase funding on the front end to prevent cyber attacks in the first place. Right. And in normal times, we could say, well, that funding is just not available. Um, States are strapped for cash. That's not true right now. States are not strapped for cash. Um, States are getting money from the federal government through uh, Biden administration policy to implement corrective measures on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. That is filtering down to state governments. And if they're going to pass legislation like this, I think it would behoove these state governments to really put investments on protecting state and local uh, government agencies, protecting business, implementing the NIST framework uh, where possible, best practices. I think more work on the preventative side is more beneficial than having this ironclad rule about paying or not paying a ransom, which, especially for the private sector, is just sometimes a very difficult decision to make and probably not something that most businesses or even local governments want the state involved in. Right, right. All right. Well, I will have a link to that in our show notes,
0: uh, of course. We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at the cyberwire.com. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. Ben, uh, you recently uh, spoke with Glyn Moody. He is the author of the book Walled Culture How Big Content Uses Technology and the Law to Lock Down Culture and Keep Creators Poor. Here's Ben and Glyn Moody.
1: The problem is that copyright, in particular, which is the, the main focus of my sort of interest recently, worked pretty well for the first 200 or so years. And therefore, the copyright industry has evolved and copyright laws have evolved assuming that that would always be the case, not an unreasonable assumption. Um, And then 30 years ago, along came the digital world. And it turns out that the digital world is not just the analog world slightly tweaked. It is fundamentally different. I'll add to say that it's a transition that every civilization makes, but only once. It's so profound in terms of that change. And the key changes are that in the analog world, uh, you're essentially dealing with objects, physical objects. It's very hard to make copies of those objects, and they tend to be imperfect. So it, it's quite easy to police the whole business of copies because you can see when people are doing it and you can take them away. You can take away their printing press. In the digital world, anyone with a computer, anyone with a smartphone can make a perfect copy of any digital file. Anyone with a connection to the internet can share that perfect copy with whatever the number is today, 5 billion, 6 billion people on the internet. And so the difference from the old analog world, when copying was hard and easy to police, is now profound because it's incredibly easy to make copies and it's impossible to stop people sharing them. The copyright industry, for obvious reasons, doesn't like that. Copyright law still hasn't recognized that. I know this might seem like an obvious question, but... Why have
2: policymakers not uh, addressed this issue and modernized copyright law uh, for the digital age? Do you think it's basically the power of the,
1: of the lobbyists? It's very much the power of the lobbyists. And the fact that there is this curious symbiosis between the copyright industry and politicians. As you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, politicians are quite weak and vain creatures and when they're offered the chance to meet their favorite pop star or their favorite writer by the copyright industry, they go weak at the knees and they tend to agree to anything that they're asked to do at that point. It's very strange. I mean, it doesn't happen in other fields.
2: It's true. Although we're all human beings. I mean, you know, if somebody told me you have the power to make copyright law and here have a nice dinner with Bono, you know, maybe I, <laughs> I'd be amused as well. Um, but they're supposed to be sort of above that fray, I suppose. They
1: are. And um, in addition to that sort of human aspect, and you're quite right, I mean, you know, we, we all have those uh, elements of uh, hero, heroine worship. Uh, the fact is that copyright is a, is a very uh, abstruse subject. Until 30 years ago, nobody cared about it, apart from the lawyers. Uh, you and I would just simply not care. What's changed is that Every time we use the internet, we are actually breaking the law in terms of copyright. There's a very interesting paper from 2007 by a legal scholar who said, well, let's just go through a typical internet day in terms of usage and work out what would be the kind of liability for copyright infringement. Perfectly normal things. He took about a pirate or anything like that. And he worked out that the ordinary internet user would probably be on the hook for about $4 billion a year. Because... The internet is a digital copying machine. It is based on copying. So trying to stop people copying things online is the archetypal trying to make water unwet. You can't do it.
2: So it seems like we can understand why this outdated copyright frame would be bad for individual creators. Their works of of art, of fiction, of music are being very easily replicated. Can you get into why this is a broader public policy problem? Like, why should people care about this who are not creating content?
1: Okay, so because the internet has become so embedded in our ordinary lives, it really matters what happens online. And in particular, um, I think, germane to your particular podcast, uh, issues of surveillance and privacy are actually embedded in the internet to a high degree and where copyright stops the internet from protecting people in terms of their privacy it becomes an issue not just about copyright but about human rights and one of the problems is that as i mentioned at the beginning copyright is trying to stop people making copies when they were physical objects that's relatively straightforward Online, it becomes an absolutely impossible task, but that doesn't stop the copyright industries from trying. And the way they want to do that is by keeping an eye on everything you do online. So copyright has turned into a surveillance practice to back up the belief that you shouldn't be making copies, but the only way to stop you is by checking everything you do online. So copyright has at its core surveillance because it's the only way to enforce it. That's a
2: really interesting perspective. I don't think I thought about it in, in, in that realm. What do you think would be a preferred approach from policymakers? Uh, and I know that's a, a pretty loaded question. And then beyond that, what, what type of like political groundswell do you think would be necessary to create that change? And how do we uh, try to inspire that political groundswell?
1: So one of the interesting and deeply depressing aspects of copyright is that it has built in a ratchet. It only ever gets stronger, longer, broader. If you look at the laws of copyright over the last hundred years, there is no sense that you and I, as members of the public, have any rights or any interests whatsoever And therefore, you get this constant eating away at even our minimal rights in the realm of copyright. In particular, for example, the public domain, which is a crucially important aspect of sort of anti-copyright, is weakened every time they bring in new laws. And so we're at the stage where it's not just a matter of what would be some good laws. We are at the stage where every law is a bad law. So for a start, we could stop bringing in bad laws. What you should then do, obviously, is to try to wind things back a bit. Frankly, I don't think that's going to happen because the copyright industry now has taken it as a matter of faith that you can only make copyright stronger. If you weaken it, then this is blasphemy. And so the politicians have it drummed into their heads, and indeed members of the public have it drummed into their heads to the extent they actually care about it, that copyright must stay strong. It must get stronger. And that if you weaken it, you're stealing from the artists. Now, in fact, that's not true because Uh, As you say, artists are obviously very interested in copyright, but it's serving them terribly. If you look at the earnings that artists in every sphere derive from copyright, they're abysmal. I mean, they're starvation wages. Everyone has to take side jobs. So this mythology that copyright is there for the artists, that copyright is necessary to keep cultural production going... Is a lie. It's a very clever lie put about by very clever people who are paid a lot of money to put it about. So that's a kind of core problem. Um, I suppose I'm saying really that copyright itself is uh, unredeemable, that at its heart it has got this surveillance. And it's, it's like, you know, if you weaken copyright instead of having, as we currently do, uh, the term of copyright is life plus 70 years. So work is protected for typically 100, 150 years. Now, supposing we reduce that to 10 years, that's a bit like saying, well, you're not going to go to prison for 150 years. You're only going to prison for 10 years. That's a real improvement. I think you'll agree. But You're still in prison for 10 years. And even if you reduce copyright to 10 years term, you'd have surveillance for those 10 years. So if you think, as I'm sure you do, surveillance is not a good idea and privacy is quite important, then Even reducing to 10 years isn't a solution. So what my book is trying to hint at, um, slightly boldly perhaps, is that maybe we should try to rethink the entire system and come up with something better that doesn't take away our fundamental human rights. So
2: just to play devil's advocate, if I'm somebody who is concerned that your preferred approach would be taking a hatchet to 300 years of established copyright law, that would upset a, a delicate system that we've relied on? I mean, how would you respond, and, and how would you respond to at least a class of, of artists and creators who have benefited from the incumbent system? How would you make that argument that your preferred approach, which is, as you say, pretty bold and radical, would actually be a, of benefit?
1: Okay, so I think there are two things there. One is, what is copyright for? And I would say that it is to reward creators fairly and to maximize the amount of creativity that you and I can enjoy. The current system certainly doesn't do that. I mean, the vast majority of artists are not being rewarded fairly for the work that they do. What's happening is that the intermediaries, the recording companies, the publishers are doing really well. Just recently, uh, a company went on the public stock exchange and the CEO picked up, you know, 250 million dollars as a, just a bonus i don't think many artists are earning that now your point about that the ones doing well you're absolutely right there's a very small number that do do well and that's very convenient because it means the intermediaries can say well what's the problem you know some artists are doing really well clearly you're not working hard enough or you know you're not trying hard enough because you too could actually make that and it, for them, it's really convenient, too, because they only have to manage a small number of highly paid artists rather than, as I would prefer, several million well-paid but not highly paid artists. It's much easier for them as a business to manage a few superstars than to pay fairly millions of people. There's also, that's, that's
2: interesting, there's also this problem of collective action. So I remember back to the early 2000s when Napster took over, Uh, And that was a major threat to to the music industry. But any artist that came out and talked about how Napster was going to cripple their industry, they became a pariah. I mean, I remember Metallica coming out. How do you work around that collective action problem where it might be disadvantageous for individual creators and artists to come out as wanting to reform copyright laws, even if it would be good for the entire industry?
1: Well, again, I mean, the highly paid people may well suffer. I'm not really interested in just the 1%. Personally, I care more about the 99% in the same way that I care about the creators and not the companies that are making the money. So I, I want to look at the bigger picture. And I want to find a way whereby more people can make a living from creating great stuff that you and I can enjoy. And what's interesting is that in the same way that the internet has become the problem for the copyright industry, I think the internet is a solution for the creators, because what's interesting is that you can now call out and reach out to your fans directly and say, look, I would like to write this book. I would like to make this song. No recording company, no publishing company is interested in me. I know you've listened to my music in the past or read my book in the past. Would you fund me for this next work? So people pay forward. They don't pay for the thing that's already been produced. They pay for the thing that will be produced. Now, this true fans approach was first sort of articulated by Kevin Kelly in 2008. And back then, it was quite hard for that to work. Moving on those 14 years, it's now pretty easy because we've got all these sites like Kickstarter and Patreon, which makes it incredibly easy and indeed accepted that you do put the money in before something's created. And there are good reasons why you do that, because if you love an artist's work, a creator's output, you want more of it. And it's not unreasonable that you pay them to do that. So if you care, you pay them, and then you get more of what you love. So it sounds like a great deal. What's happening here is instead of the creators getting like, 10%, 10%, if they're lucky, of the sales and the intermediaries getting 90%. With these kind of sites, they typically get 90 95%, and the rest is obviously just the cost of running those sites. So you're turning it on its head. And you don't need so many people to pay up front as you would need for them to pay afterwards, But because you get a far higher cut.
2: It's interesting. I mean, if you're saying, which I think you are, that you doubt policymakers would adopt your preferred approach to copyright law, which I think we can, we can grant. Is there, like the, uh, what you're describing with using uh, these fundraising sites to have people pay for, for future output, are there technological solutions? Uh, so this could be something that's market-driven that would better protect the 99% of creators that you're
1: so passionate about? I think it's even easier than that. I don't think we even need technological solutions. We just need people to realize they can do it. And what's interesting is that some uh, artists already doing this, Cory Doctorow most famously recently, um, wanted to make an audio version of one of his books. And uh, basically uh, the terms under which he was offered that audio version were not satisfactory. So he started a, a Kickstarter and said, look, I really want to make this audio version for my book. Could you help fund it? And in a month, he'd raised $260,000. Now, okay, he's very high profile, he's very well known, but he shows what can be done And I think if more artists trusted to their fans, they would find that they are actually much stronger than they think they are in terms of the power relationship with the intermediaries. So I don't think we actually need more technological solutions. That said, I also think there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs here because we're talking about reinventing the entire cultural production ecosystem where you don't have the enormous oligopolies which basically run publishing of music and the film industry. So there's a chance to, to recreate that process in terms of smaller companies, more agile companies, startups. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to serve the artists rather than serving the intermediaries.
2: So for average consumers like myself, what would your short-term advice be Should I, if I want a new Radiohead album, should I go to Radiohead's website and just front them a bunch of money and and hope that this can get beyond the antiquated copyright laws? What should we do as consumers to help support this proposed transition?
1: So I don't think the Radioheads of this world need this system, and they may indeed fight against it because they're doing pretty well. However, There are, you know, several million talented musicians out there, some of whom you've probably already come across. So throw them some money. Say, look, I think you're really good. I think, you know, you've got a great future. I would love to hear more of your music. Here's $10, $100, whatever you can afford, because that's a great thing. This isn't you've got to pay $10 or $100. Anything you can do, anything you can pay is good. But find the people, the stars of tomorrow, who may not become the stars of tomorrow because the system doesn't care. You can create the new cultural landscape by supporting the creators you love. So that's something that everyone can do now. It's, it's you know, very easy in a sense. Um, the, the people at the top of the system, as I say, they, they don't really need this and may well fight it, but you know, they're not the future anyway. I mean, they're the past. So.
0: Ben, I, I, this is a great interview. I, I, I'm fascinated by this topic. It's actually a topic of great interest to me. Um, I have thoughts. All right. Give <laughs> me those thoughts. thoughts. So first of all, and, and I and I, my thoughts may be a bit uh, outside of the mainstream here when it comes to copyright. I will say as someone who uh, spent a lot of time in the content creation world,
2: um, You're a much more creative person than me, so this is more personal to you. I mean, I just—I <laughs> don't have that same type of creative energy. Well,
0: first of all, I think uh, copyright is way too long. I I, I don't understand why uh, copyright is longer than a patent, for example. Yes. Why not make them the same? And my I have friends and colleagues who are content creators who think that I'm all wet when it comes to this, that— uh, you know, not only should they reap the benefits of the creative work, but their children and grandchildren in perpetuity should enjoy. <laughs> and, and I just don't agree with that. I think, uh, and and the reason for that is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it is my understanding that the creation of copyright law in the United States was to protect the public domain. Yes, it, yes. the public domain was the was the reason why we have copyright to give the creators a period of time uh, where they can profit off their work and so that then it can go into the public domain. It seems to me like that's upside down now as so few things enter the public domain um, and and the erosion of fair use uh, that's happened lately is also problematic. I mean, I see folks on YouTube, uh, YouTubers who are, clearly commenting on things that have copyright protection, but they're doing scholarly analysis of it, and they get hit with copyright
2: violations, and there's no recourse. Right, and it really stops the free flow of of information online, and I think our copyright laws, as Glenn was saying, are just outdated in the digital world, where there are so many potential fair uses one could make, especially with something like YouTube, because you could... With any creative work, you can analyze it. You can discuss it. Right. Uh, and we want people to be able to have that public conversation without constantly being worried that their content is going to be removed, that they're going to be sued under DMCA, uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Right, right. I I just think that's bad for all of us. Yeah. Uh,
0: I remember, you know, back in the, the early days of the digital transformation, there was—and, uh, you know, people were sharing things online, and there was— Uh, dare I say, moral panic, (laughs) you know, and and there was a gentleman who was put in jail for uh, videotaping a movie at this movie theater. So he set up his camcorder in the movie theater uh, and videotaped a movie and got caught doing it. And he was convicted and sentenced to more time than he would have gotten for murder.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Um, I kind of thought all those warnings at the beginning of movies, uh, an FBI warning that used to get on VHS. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I thought those uh, warnings weren't as robust or scary as uh, a potential v- act of violence. Um, but apparently in that one instance it was. Yeah. And I just think that is completely backwards. Yeah. There's also a collective action problem here where hmm. any creative... Person, somebody who writes music, does artwork, uh, is an author. If they're the ones who try to stand up and protect their their intellectual property rights, they're they might get blackballed or be disfavored in the industry. Um, and I think some of them have legitimate claims. I mean, you look back to the Napster era, and it was Metallica that took the hit. Right. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily fair to them. I think this is a policy problem. Uh, you've identified the problems with the broader policy relating to copyright, and I think it's incumbent upon our policymakers to come up with something uh, reasonable that balances the interests of individual creators versus the interest of having uh, the free and open flow of information online.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Lynn Moody is absolutely right here and hit the nail on the head that this transition uh, demands that we re- re-examine our copyright law. It's it's not the same. It's just different. Uh, digital digital uh, information is different than physical copies of things, and the and people are operating in the old way, as if it's not. And that should be seemingly
2: obvious, right? I mean, it's just, it's another... I think it is, but I think
0: they're just the old, the folks who have power and, you know, every time, uh, what is it, every time Mickey Mouse is about
2: to go into public domain, public, or the the copyright gets extended, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And well, anybody with incumbent power is always going to fight tooth and nail to protect that power. Yes,
0: there you go. You said it much more eloquently than I did. Oh, well, I never... (laughs) Well, uh, again, uh, thanks to Glenn Moody for taking the time for us. Uh, I'm really – I have not yet uh, been able to dig into this book here, but uh, I'm going to uh, dig into this one. Again, the book is titled uh, Walled Culture, How Big Content Uses Technology
2: and the Law to Lock Down Culture – and keep creators poor. I gotta say, Glenn was also a pleasure to, to talk with. We had an extensive conversation before we recorded, and I just really enjoyed hearing his perspective and getting to know him. So, thanks, Glenn, for for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate him taking the time.
0: With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.